1: At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See Center for Details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Hi, Nick. Hey, Hannah. And hello, listener. You're listening to Civics 101, and it's story time. And actually, this is going to be an episode in two parts. Part one, America's origin stories. More specifically... America's origin myths.
0: Do we have myths?
1: Oh, Nick, we are myths.
0: (laughs) Okay, I'm very excited for this, in part because my older son right now is absolutely obsessed with Greek myths, and it's Greek above all else. Like, other myths don't even come close to cutting it. He sees Greek myth as the truest myth.
1: Okay, this is very interesting because, Nick, what's a true myth? Like, truth is not the point of myth. The point of myth is to create morals and principles and power dynamics and cultural practices. Which is not necessarily to say that myths are about lying. They're just about finding the strongest story to build a world around. And mind you, myths are important. We do need them. But sometimes the question is, how long
2: do we need them for? Let's start with this idea of a myth, you know. When you look at what is a myth, a myth is something that tries to create kind of a a larger uh, framework, a larger meaning, um, maybe kind of a a spiritual dimension even. And you do this by mythic narratives. Of course, those myths that I discuss are modern myths, if you will, you know, they are not classical myths. they don't go back to antiquity. So these are modern myths that provide ontological security, and that eliminate contingency. This is Heike
1: Paul. Anyone who reads our newsletter knows that I recently discovered her wonderful book, The Myths That Made America, and I devoured it. And Heike, as you may guess, is not herself American. She's a professor of American studies at Friedrich
2: Alexander University in Bavaria. I think there's always this fascination with the U.S. as this... um, very uh, strong, at least we used to think that way, very strong (laughs) Um, imagined community that just likes to display the flag all over the place, you know, that that is into civil religion, the Pledge of Allegiance. I mean, these are things that for a German are very strange.
1: And before we dig into this American strangeness, I have to say that Heike's book is nuanced and it's deep and it's really good. And Nick, I'm not going to do it justice. I can't. There is so much more going on, and if you read it, I believe that you will get a complete picture, and also it's open source on JSTOR, so if you can, I encourage you to indeed dig deeper. But what we're going to do today is take a look at the seven myths that she lays out and why on earth they exist and why they matter and how we've used them.
2: So the big why when I speak to my students about the, this idea of an imagined community, I always tell them, you know, when you have a romantic relationship with somebody, then you constitute a collectivity. This collectivity needs to be nourished. You know, this is why you always tell each other stories about when you met the first time, what was it that got you interested in this other person? You have an anniversary. You know, you ha- you do things that, that bind you together to eliminate contingency <laughs> and to make you you know, convinced that it could be no other person that you're with. No one else would uh, tick all the boxes, right? So uh, any collectivity needs to create this kind of meaning, right? And so, like, if you are a couple, of course, you know each other. If you're a family, that gets, you know, larger. And a nation, any modern nation state also needs to do that.
0: Eliminate contingency?
2: Yeah. um, In other words, if you have a
1: shared, agreed-upon collection of stories and beliefs then you're less likely to have to plan for potential issues in the future. Like, you're already agreeing. So a partnership needs that, and a nation needs that. And these myths that we're about to talk about, they really start to emerge as the country is hitting a fever
2: pitch of immigration in the 19th century. And I think here, with the emergence of the modern nation state in the 19th century, we also see the emergence of uh, these kinds of modern myths that are connected to the nation or the nation state and that stabilize the nation state as an entity that is not questioned every other day. Within Europe, when you think of the emergence of the modern nation states in in France or Germany or wherever, of course, there was this reach back to uh, one's own history. Right. You would go go back to the Middle Ages or maybe even antiquity. But there was a sense that, you know, something has happened in that place uh, that you could feed into uh, this national mythology. In the U.S., of course, we all know there were communities living uh, in North America and the Americas at large. But the native perspectives were not the ones that were fed into the foundational mythology. For, for a long time, I would say quite the contrary, sort of the native presence is really an exception.
0: Okay, so we needed some collective history, but we didn't want it to have anything to do with the people who were here already who had a long history.
2: With one notable exception, and we will get to that, but yeah. There was a more conscious process, I would say, conscious selection process, also by a kind of an intellectual elite at the time of the founding yeah and it was kind of a a balance that needed to be created between on the one hand borrowing from highly considered european tradition and sources but on the other hand making sure this is not who we are we are not europeans we are americans yeah and so this is maybe a second dimension of why this is so interesting in the united states you know this balancing out Uh, of foreign influences with kind of making it new um, uh, aspect, energy, but at the same time really obscuring uh, the indigenous roots.
1: So in her book, Heike covers seven myths in total. But like I said, this is an episode in two parts. So part one, we're going to talk about the four origin myths. Part two, we will take on the three myths that laid the groundwork for America's future. So, the origins? We've got the stories of Christopher Columbus, Pocahontas, the Pilgrims-slash-Puritans, and the Founding Fathers. Heike calls these... VIPs of American Beginnings. Speaking of VIPs of American Beginnings...
2: Yeah, with Columbus, the one thing that we need to be aware, I think, and that's also very funny, is that for being like the first great national hero of the United States, he was somebody who'd never set foot on the territory that now is the United States, right? He only got as far as the Caribbean, never even made it to the south of Florida. <laughs> and and so that's kind of a paradox, of course, that you have here this guy. He's uh, Italian. He sails for the Spanish crown. He visits, uh, yeah, uh, the Americas. He doesn't know where he is. You know, he doesn't even think that he is in the Americas. He thinks he's on the backside of India. Also, dies not finding out that he's not in India, um, <laughs> but he's not uh, even touching U.S. American territory. And so many scholars have pointed that out. Of course, I I was not the first to point that out. Many have just to see the the way that not Columbus discovered America, but that in fact, I think this is Claudia Bushman who says America discovered Columbus (laughs) at some point (laughs) uh, to make him out this sort of uh, larger than life national hero at a time when uh, they needed one. Right. And so why did they need one? Okay. So it was uh, in the late 18th century.
0: Late 18th century America, a.k.a. the time of the Constitutional Convention, we finally are our own thing.
2: There was not a tradition to harken back to in the United States, not the kind in any case that was uh, desired. Uh, There was this um, strong conflict, of course, with the British War, Revolutionary War, War of Independence. You didn't want to really take recourse to the fact that there was a lot of Britishness in the New World. So you had to pick somebody who was not British. And so you picked Columbus.
0: So these revolutionaries were desperate for something, anything historical to cling to. And it couldn't have anything to do with the millennia of existing human history that was already here in this country. So they pick someone who technically has nothing to do with what was about to be the United States?
1: Oh, Nick, you mean with what was about to be Columbia.
0: Oh, right, right. We talked about this in another episode. We didn't call ourselves America. We were Columbia back in the day. That's because of Christopher Columbus? And then, of course, we have Washington, D.C., the district of Columbia. And towns called Columbus everywhere. Wait, hold on. Columbia University?
1: As in formerly King's College. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's all Christopher Columbus. Or I should say Cristoforo Colombo, because Christopher Columbus is not an Italian name, right? <laughs> but no, he is not. an Italian man. In the U.S., the man, Christopher Columbus, was revered. But then the idea that he came to represent just became this like separate glorious thing. You see these portrayals of America as this sort of goddess woman, Columbia. You know what I'm talking about? Like in the painting of Manifest Destiny. Right, 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 right. With the woman laying out the power lines, like that's Columbia.
0: Yeah, she was our pre-Uncle Sam, Uncle Sam.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So
2: why the man, Christopher Columbus, to begin with? Columbus was not only not British and therefore made a good national hero for Americans, he was also somebody who was a little bit troubled by the fact that he had to sail for a queen who was not forever grateful to him? Uh, uh, quite the contrary, he was incarcerated. You know, he you know became this kind of tragic figure in canonical accounts. In any case, and so here you had like this larger than life adventurer and explorer who then also became the victim of a monarch. Uh, was not appreciated. Um, and so yes let's take Columbus and and you could at this point you could use him to to engage with this idea of conquest crossing the continent you know westward you could just be uh, those who would, successfully continue uh, Columbus's quest to India, (laughs) you know, one step further. And that would then also nicely tie in with the frontier narratives, with Manifest Destiny, you know, everything kind of could be sensibly connected to the worship of Christopher Columbus.
0: And in the soon-to-be independent United States, I assume the whole conquest thing was really useful when it came to sanctifying our tendency to oppress and enslave.
2: When you see early visual representations, you will always see uh, that there is this immense hierarchy between a figure like Columbus and his, his cross, you know, superior, religiosity, closed, fully closed, ornamental. And then there's always not really individual people that he meets upon arrival. There are always like groups of natives, you know, they're not uh, individualized and they are usually naked. They're depicted as much smaller than Columbus um, in the images. Uh, And they're also depicted as being in awe, being impressed, frightened, but um, obviously um, accepting this figure (laughs) uh, or this authority of the white uh, explorer. And then, Nick, and this is
1: really important, not just to this American myth, but to all of the myths that Heike talks about in her book, the shifting populace of the United States
2: shifted the myth itself. For all the reasons that he was so practical as a hero for early America, I think in the 19th century we can see that there were also some who felt that maybe he was not the right kind of guy (laughs) to uh, represent the American nation. For one thing, because it was discovered, or people remembered that after all, he was Catholic.
0: Why is that a problem?
1: Well, Catholic immigrants in the 19th century experienced a good deal of stigmatization and discrimination. As immigrants from Ireland and Italy streamed in, Protestant America in particular became suspicious of Catholics. So... Columbus is a Catholic just like these immigrants. They don't love that. But what ended up happening is that some Irish and many Italian immigrants in particular began to think of Columbus as a kind of founding father. He was Italian, he was credited with being the first one here in America, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
0: So when was the turnaround? Like what point did people finally take a look at the whole picture? And start talking about how Christopher Columbus was, in fact, a murderer and an enslaver, and he might not be the best choice as the representative of a country who is trying to wrestle with its own past atrocities?
2: With the 20th century, major revisionisms taking place around the 1992 anniversary, quote unquote, of the quote unquote discovery. <laughs> so, what do you do 500 years after? Uh, Columbus landed in uh, the Caribbean, what is there to celebrate? It was actually during this quincentennial
1: that states started sheepishly backing away from the nationwide devotion to an unsavory historical figure who never actually came here to begin with. That's when you started to hear about Indigenous Peoples Day being celebrated in place of Columbus Day.
0: I think the first time I started to hear about this was when I read this book, Lies My Teacher Told Me. But what you've been telling me is is true. Like he wasn't here, he was a bad guy. And yet, there is so much resistance to that shift away from Columbus.
2: It is Columbus
0: Day if you didn't know, but uh, several cities across the country will celebrate Indi- Indigenous Peoples Day instead. Indigenous. Uh some far-left groups like
1: Antifa are calling for violence. Yeah, well, Christopher Columbus was actually like taken in by the Irish and especially the Italians who were predominantly Catholics. Absolutely.
0: I think we had a Columbus bust in our house growing up.
1: Okay. Wow. Okay. Um because that was the connection that these immigrants had to America's founding. Their legitimacy and their patriotism all wrapped up with a nice neat little bow in one historical figure. And in part two of Civics 101 on American myths, I'm going to come back to that point, Nick, of why it's so seriously hard to let go of all of these myths. But for now, origin myth number two, Pocahontas.
2: even though we still see her as this wonderful woman, enticing, attractive, exotic, as the object of a romantic affair, of romantic desire. Um, We know now, of course, you know, could have done all along, that, of course, she was not romantically infatuated with John Smith. Because she was, I don't know, seven, nine, eleven. I don't know. She was like, she was a child and he was in his mid to late 30s.
1: Also, Pocahontas, not her formal name. Her formal name was Amanute. Pocahontas was a nickname. So, a major part of the Pocahontas story is the part about her being a quote unquote Indian princess. She's the daughter of Powhatan, chief of the Algonquin nation, and the leader of a very strong coalition of tribes, when Captain John Smith and others came from England
2: to Jamestown, Virginia. And so there is an encounter. Pocahontas is a little girl. John Smith is a, a man in his 30s. They meet, I guess. We, we know that they met. The Smith falls out of favor or not. I mean, he goes back and forth. But then he feels like he's being captured by Powhatan and he is supposedly about to be executed. And in his own retelling of what happened, it is uh, Pocahontas who um, falls, uh, jumps into the arms of Powhatan to say, no, please, I love him, don't kill him. That is the official version. Um, And uh, then John Smith says, you know, she saved my life because she is madly in love with me (laughs) as uh, women all over the world, because we know from his trip to Turkey and the other places that always women fell in love with him and saved him. And that's his uh, that's his story all along.
0: John Smith is like women are obsessed with me everywhere I go. It's
2: in his journals, man.
1: Oh, by the way, here's another major part of the Pocahontas story. We don't have anything that she wrote. It's all just accounts from other people in her life. So John Smith writes that he's about to be executed, and Pocahontas saves him. You um, may have seen the fairly well-known drawing. It's from the 1600s. It shows Pocahontas throwing her body over John Smith to prevent the executioner's blow. Alternatively, you may have seen the 1995 Disney classic animated film, Pocahontas, in which the exact same scene
2: happens.
0: Still haven't seen it.
2: When I was writing the book, actually, I still had students young enough to have been in the Disney craze when the film came out. And then, then we had one session where everyone brought their Pocahontas Barbies. <laughs> oh no. Uh, full disclosure i had
1: the pocahontas barbie
0: you didn't i did where is it
1: i don't know where it is now man
2: anyway back to the supposed rescue now in light of ethnographic and anthropological scholarship we now tend to read the rescue scene not as a rescue scene at all we tend to read it as a scene of adoption There are a number of of scholars who are quite established who have convincingly argued that what is happening here is that Smith is adopted into the uh, tribe of the Algonquins and that Pocahontas is given the role of being kind of the special mediator or being kind of a a special relation to him, but not in a romantic way at all.
0: All right. So... Not only was Pocahontas a child who most certainly was not madly in love with Captain John Smith, she also never dramatically saved his life.
1: No, it was more like an elaborate ceremony to improve interrelations that John Smith
2: totally misinterpreted. He's wounded. Uh, he goes back to England. Uh, Pocahontas thinks she's, he's actually dead. You know, she nobody tells her that he has left. You know, she thinks he has died. Within the um, Conflict between the the natives and the English. She's taken uh, captive. She's held in captivity by the English And then she's basically forced coerced whatever to marry John Rolfe to settle interracial relations in the colony And she does that she, she marries John Rolfe. She has a son with him. They go to England to promote the colony This is a big promotion Thing you know, and I want to uh, get more resources. They need more people. So they go to to London, show her off as Lady Rebecca. This is her most famous famous portrait when she looks like she's in fact not Indian at all or not native. Um, and as Lady Rebecca, she's um, um, having an audience at the court. Uh, she uh, catches the virus uh, after all. She's sick and then she dies and is now buried in Gravesend in south of England. She never makes it back on the ship to go home.
1: And Heike pointed out that when you see etchings or images of Pocahontas, of Amanute, post-marriage to John Rolfe, she's portrayed as someone who appears a lot closer to a white woman than anything else. I mean, they called her Lady Rebecca. She was this figure used to represent unity,
2: cohesion, defense of the white colonizer, uh, harmony. So Pocahontas is... um made out to be this exceptional figure because she, again, in the colonial mindset, was the first one to see how important the English were and how attractive and how <laughs> uh, uh, how much sort of the future was the English in America. Right? Um, and so in the 19th century, again, there is this concoction of this romantic plot between her and John Smith. Um, sometimes it's just like really one author who writes about it. And then it is carried over by other authors and it's, you know, it becomes this tradition. Uh, But then when you go back to the source, you see what nonsense this actually is. (laughs) But it has given us volumes and volumes of trashy romance novels.
0: (laughs) So basically there's this completely false alternative narrative about things somehow being good. Uh, Some love story at the center of important relationships between the Jamestown settlers and the Powhatan, even though it didn't happen.
2: Since this could not take place, this utopian scenario did not evolve, that also then gave uh, white settlers a reason or legitimacy or justification just to have it any other way.
1: In other words, because Pocahontas represented both settler and transatlantic romance and unification, which she did not, this kind of takes care of the problem of the displacement and worse of indigenous people. And we have two more origin myths coming your way. But first, we're going to take a quick break.
0: But before we go, Hannah, I'm willing to bet whatever newsletter comes after this episode will be essentially what would happen if anyone out there asked you a question about this
1: book. In other words, three hours of slightly free-form stream of consciousness gushing about American myths.
0: Yes, my current one I'm typing up now is about black licorice. So... But all the stuff that Hannah and I write is compacted to fit in our newsletter, which you really should subscribe to. It's just good stuff, and we don't try to sell you anything.
1: And I will tell you about the early days of American history scholarship and how it defined basically everything we learned for like well over a 100 years.
0: You can subscribe to that newsletter extra credit at our website, civics101podcast.org.
1: At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See Center for Details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. We're back. You're listening to Civics 101. And in part one of this two-parter on American myths, I'm speaking with Heike Paul about her book, The Myths That Made America. We're talking about the origin stories held so near and dear, and sometimes less near and dear. Moving on to the third origin myth that Heike covers, the pilgrims, the Puritans, and the promised land.
2: Here we have, um, I think, a myth that is clearly steeped in kind of a religious experience or that is using religious experience to talk about um, a secular uh, dimension or secular development. So um, the Promised Land, of course, is a a topos that we take from the Old Testament. It's uh, the narrative of uh, the Exodus. So actually quite early in the Old Testament. And the Exodus story is about uh, the israelites escaping bondage and slavery in egypt crossing the wilderness crossing the red sea and then finding their uh, utopia or their home or their own sort of territorial sovereignty and so in the the of the promised land the the exodus part it's always the nice part to tell. Everyone likes to tell that part. It's about the Mayflower. It's about uh, escaping a British oppression. It's about religious toleration. Um, and it is about finding freedom for religious practice elsewhere in the United States, in uh, Massachusetts Bay. Of course, From the beginning, there is conflict in the colony. And there, of course, there is also conflict with those who are already there, living there, namely the Native Americans. Uh, The idea of the Promised Land is giving a, a religious dimension to the narrative of settler colonialism. Again, it makes it less contingent. It makes it justifiable. It makes it legitimate because it's been ordained by God himself it is a, a contract as it is often called a covenant between god and the worshipers um, and god is rewarding the worshipers with the land that he brings them to So that would be the straightforward narrative of the Pilgrims and the Puritans. This has gone down the centuries also as a narrative of a land grab, as a narrative of extermination, as a narrative of being extremely narrow-minded, in fact, (laughs) talking about religious toleration, right?
1: See, religion and God not unlike the exact way they had been used by the monarchy of England for forever, ordained and justified Puritan takeover and condemnation of everything that wasn't Puritan. And all under the guise of liberty, right? Religious liberty. And you might say, well, Hannah, how is that tied to modern America? Well, Hannah. Yannick?
0: How is that tied to modern America?
2: I think this whole idea of civil religion is linked to the to the Puritans.
0: What does she mean by civil religion here?
2: This is the concept that even though
1: America doesn't have an actual sectarian national religion, we do have collective beliefs and rituals and iconography. So that
2: is what we refer to as civil religion. Of course, we have other elements of religious connotations that we find in civil religion you know god bless america and god we trust i mean these are things that are also quite striking for a secular nation state and um when you have an outside perspective this may be puzzling you know because americans always find it strange that you know in bavaria we have lots of religious holidays in the calendar and you're a secular nation why do you have a religious holidays, you know. And then, you know, I point out, yeah, but you have in God we trust on every (laughs) quarter. So moving forward in
1: time, you can tie God to this idea of America as utopia, as a biblical promised land. And then that becomes a useful myth to, for example, empower people who were brought here against their will, who were enslaved. Post-emancipation, this idea could you know, reinforce what the formerly enslaved were owed here in the promised land. And then jump ahead again. Look at the immigrants whose transition to America was an exodus to the city on the hill.
0: Real quick, out of curiosity, I understand that this idea of the promised land is this really powerful image. And God has always, always been a useful justification for all sorts of power moves. But why the Puritans and why this like why this Massachusetts centric creation story about what America is? Why is it these folks in hats with buckles on their shoes shooting turkeys? Why is it that the Puritans get the first Americans ever
1: prize? Apparently, Nick, a big part of it is that they just wrote prodigiously <laughs> like talk about not having any of Pocahontas's
2: writings we have gobs of Puritan writing. Just by the sheer amount of text production they did. They made sure that they had a lasting grip on whoever came after them. Alright fourth and last origin myth. You know who's coming Nick. Who? Shall we move on to the founding fathers then? Yeah. One big, happy, harmonious group of dads. No matter where you make the cut and who's in and who's out, (laughs) there's always this idea, you know, Thomas Jefferson, Madison, and of course Washington, representing uh, Virginia or the South at the founding moment. And then there are people like Franklin or John Adams, uh, who are more representing the North. And then, you know, we can see that it's really hard to make them out as a group because they were so different from each other and they were not really kind of a harmonious group to to steer those colonies and make them into one homogenous nation, right? So from the beginning, uh, the closer you look at them, the the more you will see that they had lots of issues with each other. I mean, I think Adams and Jefferson probably hated each other. (laughs)
1: Heike did want to point out that the conversation about the founding fathers, those revered and utmost principled men who bestowed upon us the greatest government foundation known to man, has, thankfully, shifted in part to an acknowledgment of their flaws, failings, and contributions to and participation in enslavement.
2: And I think that the the myth of the founding fathers has evolved because of these debates, has evolved a lot you know so i think that's very important to see them now no longer as this figures of progress enlightenment independence and and so forth but to see them really as representatives of all of the cognitive dissonances of the time that they were living in
0: still hannah there is an almost worshipful reverence for these men who penned the precious documents at the center of American life.
2: I think that with regard to the foundational documents and the so-called authors of that documents, there is a lot of um, mythologizing, right? Pauline Meyer, she refers to the foundational documents as American scripture as kind of the bible of of americans uh and when you go look at them at the uh, archives national archives that is the sense that you get yeah you know, i remember that the first time i went there i um i was asked to get rid of my chewing gum <laughs> i was asked to stand straight in a row <laughs> and it, i was really disciplined right uh disciplined um not only for security reasons uh, before i could enter this uh, hall you know dimly lit and and bow in front of the shrine that held the declaration of independence and to me this was really strange you know but yeah i remember the chewing gum thing <laughs> so yeah i was disciplined into kind of a, a right kind of person to be able to visit this document so it's the document but of course it's also the people it's about um They were self-consciously stylizing uh, themselves and each other with regard to the foundational role that they played in the creation of the United States.
1: The founding fathers, or importantly framers, as you'll often hear us refer to them on this show, because to Heike's point, the father thing is part of the myth, are personifications of American patriotism, Of the establishment of an independent nation and rebirth through revolution. Of a homogenous group coming together to foster and facilitate a new world in the new world. To perform a near miracle. Of course, they were in actuality statesmen, politicians, who disagreed, who enslaved people, who represented the cultural and economic elite, who... And this part, Nick, I had honestly never considered, but of course, who lucked into a fortunate confluence of events.
2: When we think of a miracle, then I think it really the miracle is really the coincidence of so many different things that happened that, that made this possible, maybe. Yeah, this is really retroactively inventing a position of power and authority to speak and to utter performatively, we the people, right? At the moment they utter it, they are not um, authorized. But then with this sort of retroactively installing themselves at the seat of power, it kind of uh, makes sense. By the
1: way, Nick, do you know when the term founding fathers was first used? I don't, do you? I do. It was used by, at the time, Senator Warren G. Harding at the 1916 Republican National Convention in a speech of his.
0: Wow, so like right before our involvement in World War I. Mm-hmm.
1: So, Nick, that takes care of Heike Paul's four origin myths for America. And there are three more where that came from in part two. America's progress and future myths, which I warmly recommend you listen to right now. This episode of Civics 101 was produced by me, Hannah McCarthy, with Nick Capodice. Christina Phillips is our senior producer. Jackie Fulton is our producer. Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer. Music in this episode by Lobo Loco, 91 Nova, Ketza, Kirk Osamayo, Marxist, Howard Harper-Barnes, Chris Zabriskie, Tigran Vikran, Gregor Quendell, Timothy Infinite, and Sarah the Instrumentalist. You can check out everything we've ever made at our website, civics101podcast.org. And while you're there, if you like what you hear, consider making a donation. We are, after all, public, very public radio. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio.